Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not replace your own financial, tax, legal, or financial product advice. Well, the ancient tale of two topic shares versus property, who wins out? Well, you know, you might end up at a barbecue and you're either a friend of a friend who you've just met and they're an expert in one of these topics and they're trying to uh, tell everyone that shares are better than property or property is better than shares. And we're going to just talk about today shares and 10 reasons why they are better than property. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by Paul Benson. He's a financial planner and host of the podcast, Financial Autonomy. Paul, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, Glenn. Thanks very much for having me back. Now, we did this topic as a bit of tongue-in-cheek because we did that other episode on debt recycling and gearing, and we thought, oh, we'll do this. So, we're going to talk about today why property sucks and shares rule. (laughs) Now, full disclosure, it's not all or nothing. Like, Paul, I'm sure you've got property that you invest in yourself. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, most people that have a bit of a combination, wouldn't they? I know you're the same, Glenn. So it doesn't have to be all or nothing. So we are making entertainment, remember everyone, but we will talk specifically just, and what I want it to do is to more open your heart or your mind or your soul that, you know, if you do already have four properties or three properties or one property or whatever it is, whether you own half of a suburb and you only got property, well, maybe we need to start looking at some other investments. That's right. Open the eyes a little bit, huh? Giddy up, baby. So, I'm Glenn James. You're listening to My Millennial Money with Paul Benson. Let's have a chat right now. Okay, 10 or more reasons why property is not as good to invest in as shares. We might play a bit of ping pong. Paul, let's start with your first reason what have you got there? Why does property suck? Right. Well, I'm going to tee it off Ooh. around diversification. Right. Now, if you're a property investor, you know, they're big commitments, each one. And so, it's pretty hard to, to spread things around, right, and manage your risk. But of course, if you've got the wonder of shares and especially, you know, funds, ETFs, all that type of stuff, I mean, you can spread your investments all around the world. Uh, so, you've got different countries, different uh, industries, of course, very easy to, to invest into. Uh, and of course, you know, you get down to the different different companies at that, that sort of granular level. And currency as well across currency. different cu- countries. Thank you. Great point as well, right? So, the ability to diversify is enormous. I mean, you could buy a single ETF as an example, and that might have in some cases thousands of underlying companies that sit within that, right? And mm. certainly tons of different uh, different industries, as I say. So, you're getting exposure. Like if you buy the ASX 200 as an example, you, you're getting all the banking stocks. So, you're getting a good you know, representation of, of the financial sector. But of course, you're also getting resources, you know, all sorts of other uh, retail, uh, industrial, all those different sectors. Uh, and so, you know, they all have their, their days in the sun in terms of the economic cycle. Uh, and, and yeah, so the ability to just diversify and, and de-risk. I mean, something like that, the ASX 200, 200 different companies there, even if you had one or two that got into strife, all 200 aren't going to go and get into strife. Commonwealth Bank's not going anywhere. Yeah, I actually, I was thinking, just as you're saying, the diversification, you know, there's a diversification of income sources as well, because you don't have one tenant, you've got a diverse range of income sources, right? Exactly right. I mean, we saw that through COVID, right? I mean, plenty of certainly... Um, you know, we, we've got a little apartment ourselves and yeah, we had several months there where it was empty because someone moved out during COVID really? and it was pretty hard to get a new tenant in because no one could inspect the property because everywhere was, well, I'm in Melbourne, yeah. so shut down city, yeah. uh, you know, pretty hard to get a new tenant in, right? Whereas, yeah, your dividends, they just keep on dropping through every six months. I think it's important, like, factually speaking, I, I don't know, like, you know, when John and Emily do the counter 
podcast episode because we've put it out to John and Emily to do a 10 or more reasons why shares suck and all that stuff. <laughs> They're going to talk about the leverage thing, which we can kind of get into. But on this diversification thing, I remember in my book, Paul, I wrote like, you know, one single asset with one single income stream, what is more diverse in the one location hmm. or 200 companies? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like yeah, what is more diverse? It's a no-brainer. Absolutely. And this is why like, I won't speak on behalf of John, but I will. Um, <laughs> since we've even like started this whole podcast and the money thing, like he's now um, basically started to double down on equities. Yeah, right. In t- just in terms of the diversification play. Yep. yep. Um, so, yeah. So, diversification, it's, it's the only free lunch you get with investing. Is that the saying? Yeah, quite possibly. I mean, part of it too... You know, when we invest, that we take on risk, right? And you want to be rewarded for that risk. Mm. And part of what you think about there is if by diversifying, you're sort of optimising, right? You're taking the least amount of risk for a given return. Whereas with a lack of diversification, potentially you're taking on more risk than the than the than the, the potential that there is for return, right? It's the efficient frontier is the concept, but one of my that's what you're trying to get yeah. To so the, one of my um, footnotes, right, for um, you know all this fodder that will will that we're talking about because I didn't know which point to put it because it wasn't really a point. I had a, a cousin and they had an investment property, right? Someone slipped down the back step and broke their hip like an older person and they got sued. Wow. And there was something weird. The insurance company didn't cover it or it was a technicality. The insurance company came out and said, no, it was painted with the wrong type of paint, like something to... Mm. So in terms of risk... Mm. Like there is a lot of risk that you carry when you've got people involved in your asset. So that and that's a that's a real thing. Like yeah, yeah. you know, if there is a, an issue with one of your listed equities and that company gets sued, it's really not going to impact you. And I think again, you know, I know I'm plugging my book, but I do because there's always new people that listen to the show. Mm, so absolutely. thank you for everyone who's got it, but there's always new people listening and in my book, I kind of basically talked about diversification like, you know, CBA shares or do you buy four banks? Then you got all four banks. But then again, you've only got a portfolio of banks. So we go down this diversification path. If you had two banks and one of them failed, you've lost half your money, right? Mm-hmm. But if you had 200 companies and one of them failed, it barely moves the needle. Correct. Correct. So like you said before, if there's one failing, it's, it's not good night nurse. No, and it's it takes a lot of pressure off you, I think, you as an investor as well. Like if you think about, you know, the ASX 200, right, this past year energy stocks have been the winner because mm. you've had Ukraine and Russia and oil prices going stupid. Mm. But who's to say as the investor you would have necessarily thought, oh, yeah, I'm going to construct a portfolio so that I've got exposure to energy stocks, right? But mm. just by buying the whole index, you naturally get some of that exposure. Mm. Um, banks have done well this year as well, but who's to say that they do well next year, you know? So you don't have to – there's just less pressure to get it right if you're buying a diversified portfolio, which you can do so easily with shares, whereas I think to make a property purchase – you would really want to convince yourself that, boy, I, I, I can't get this wrong, you mm. know? And, and, and that's far more pressure and far more weight to have to carry. And it's probably another risk in terms of, um, you know, just in the risk basket. So many Australians, thankfully none of the listeners of the My Millennial Property Podcast or this podcast or your podcast, by default, particularly in, you know, uh, suburbia Australia, they'll buy an investment property in the next street, it is interesting that, isn't it? And there's probably some weird confirmation bias, some type of home bias, all these biases or biases or whatever. The, I can't speak good England. But like, as an example, the house that I'm renting, right, they paid $1.75 million for it. I'm paying $900 a week. Now, if you do the maths, that's the crappest return on the planet. Yeah, that's not great. And I said to the landlord once, I'm like, why'd you buy this? I would have bought two bloody houses in, you know, two $600,000 houses somewhere else. Mm. You got more diversification, higher yield, but they live in the same suburb. Yeah. And it's just this, 
I guess there's a sense. I assume the rationale is they know the value, they know what a fair price is, that sort of stuff. Whereas you worry, well, they, they, go go they overpaid because it's got to be worth less well, than what they paid for it this year. Like, but I assume that would be the rationale, right? That you're like, yeah, I don't, yeah. You don't know what you don't know. Yeah. All right. Look, I think we've covered diversification. Absolutely. How about back to you, Glenn? What's your number? All right, your, I'm going to go. Starting I'm, point. I'm going in strong here. Fire away. Property as an investment class in Australia, it's the only investment where you get to the point where you get taxed on the way in, stamp duty, during land tax and after CGT. Very true. Very now, true. Yeah. I don't pay stamp duty on my shares and I don't pay land tax on my shares. That's right. Capital gains tax you can't get around. Exactly. But quite right. The other two. Yeah. Yep. And it's a, huge, it's a huge issue. And in fact, not just the stamp duty, but of course you've got your agent costs as well when you sell. Uh, you've got your conveyancing costs when you buy. I don't know if that's one that comes up down the road, but in fact, I think those are that, that's one of your points. Yes, yeah, well, I might be jumping ahead. So whatever. Right, we'll, we'll, we'll circle back. But, yeah. but no, you're dead right. Tax, and, and especially the land tax is interesting, isn't it? I mean, it, I, I sort of, I get the rationale, but yeah, you know, someone with a, I don't, I'm not quite sure where the thresholds sit, but a million dollars plus somewhere in there. I think in New South Wales, it might be 600. Yeah, so it kicks in, you know, yeah. given the value of a property in New South Wales. And that's Wales, all state-based as well. Mm, kicks in pretty early. Yeah. And yet someone else could have 10 million bucks worth of shares and, and never comes into play. Yeah. It's, uh, it, it's a really significant difference, isn't it? Yeah, so that's just a little, you know, counter jab to the property people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, well, 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 let's, I mean, let's tie right, that well, in with yeah. the other point that I had because I think they're both very connected. Yeah. It is... I had minimal transaction costs when you mm. buy shares. So, I mean, there's some brokerage, but these days that's pretty minimal. Um, but yeah, there's no stamp duty. There's no conveyancing costs, no agent's fees when you need to sell it. Uh, no pest and building. Correct. Um, I mean, yeah, that's just the, like the general transaction cost, buy and sell, um, let alone, you know, the normal ongoing costs associated with owning a property. So, yeah, your, your shares are just from that point of view, they're, they're so efficient, aren't they? Mm. Like, as you say, no taxes, but no cost getting in, or very low cost to get in, very low cost to get out. Yeah. Um, hard to beat in that respect, I would have thought. And I think, like, this whole conversation, like, in all the, um, I guess, the years that I was doing advice, and you probably do the same when you model, like, the long-term track record of Australian residential property and Australian shares and international shares it's basically pretty similar. It's interesting that, you know, like, and I haven't, didn't have this as one of the points, but I think it's relevant. I can be really confident in historical returns on shares, but I'm really not confident in what the actual historical returns are on Australian property mm. because how do they possibly factor in all the money that people spend doing up properties, improving properties, you know? You could buy a property for a million bucks, sell it for one and a half, and the, the stats will show you made a 50% gain. Mm. But you might have spent 700000 renovating it and actually lost a couple of hundred thousand. Yeah, well, the overcapitalizing thing is real, isn't it? The stats have got no way to pick up mm. how much people have spent on a property. And even, even if they could somehow rather, I don't know, track what was spent at Bunnings or something, they still can't factor in, well, did that person do a whole lot of the work themselves or did they hire a tradie to do it, right? Yeah, so there's all those sunk costs that aren't in the data. Yeah, so to me, I, I have zero confidence in actually what the property data is, mm. but I can have confidence in the share data. So, mm. yeah. Yeah, that's good. And I guess as well, with the share data, you can actually have a, a return including, like you can look at an accumulation index. Mm -hmm. So, if you reinvested the dividends, where I don't think you can really have an accumulation index for Australian residential property. Oh, I've not seen it. Yeah. No. I mean, like anything, more than happy to be wrong. Mm. Um but I'm probably not. No, joking, guys. Lol. No. <laughs> as, as if. <laughs> yeah, no. So that's just one there. Um, I think on the proviso today, we'll just assume over the long term, relatively the same outcome. Sure. What have you got next? All right. Now, the next one, it, it does tie onto this um, risk category, and I kind of touched on it before, but there's a risk of less consistent cash flow. So most ETFs and managed funds and equities, like big blue chip stuff, mm. they're going to be pumping out a dividend every six months or a distribution mm -hmm. every four months. For those, and I'll just pause there because I was driving along the other day thinking about this. For those who are new to this podcast world and the money stuff, shares pay dividends. Now, when there's an ETF or a managed fund, those shares within that structure pay dividends into the managed fund 
And then every quarter or six months or yearly, really depends, that fund will pay a distribution. So technically, you can't get a dividend from a managed fund. Yep. So that's just a bit of a technicality FYI for everyone. But you've got a, a less risk with shares and equities and managed funds of not having your income come in because like your property in Melbourne during the lockdowns, what if there was no tenant? Mm. There's no income from that asset. Mm-hmm. Also, you've got the risk of your tenant still being in there and not paying and it's really hard to evict somebody who hasn't paid their rent for a long time and it's not my own and I've, it probably is outliers because most people want to pay their rent but I've remember seeing things on like a current affair you know the great show that it is where journalists go to start their career or die um, <laughs> <laughs> they um, you know you see these outliers where it's like oh they've lived there a year and haven't paid rent and mm-hmm. can't get rid of it. so there, there are risks to income and your financial return on that single asset is based on an individual person or household going to work, managing their money well, and paying you each week. Mm-hmm. And, and I thought that, that's yeah a really good point, and it was particularly well illustrated. I know it's a while back now, but in the GFC period in 2008, now that was you know, most of the world had a recession. Australia kind of sidestepped it, but nevertheless, you know, it was there's a lot of turmoil in terms of investment markets. But we did see that dividends, even in really challenging times like that, dividends held up really, really well. You know, very few companies cut their dividends. Uh, and if they did, you know, perhaps they suspended one for six months or so. Mm. But if you had a, a diversified portfolio, you were fine. And it, and it really highlighted, I mean, businesses like Woolworths, for instance, you know, GFC completely unaffected. So therefore their profits unaffected and therefore their dividends unaffected, right? Mm. So again, that I guess circles back to the benefit of diversification. If you spread across different industries, even if there is an economically challenging period for one industry, it's not going to be for all industries, certainly not all at the same time. Yeah. So, you know, yeah, I mean, the dividends are a function, a function of profit mm. and, and yeah, you know, the profits of, of the sort of companies that are big enough to be listed on the stock exchange are generally pretty reliable. And I'm pretty sure the last time I went to Woolworths to go shopping and they said, we're closed, go away, was never. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like Easter and Christmas Day, they probably close. Mm. But on balance, it's not as if, oh, we're not open this week. Yeah. And even through the worst of the worst COVID, they were still open. Yep. So, And plenty of businesses like that. Telstra's the same. Yep. Or your... um, Infrastructure type companies. Yep. Um, I mean, all the banks. All the banks. People yeah. are going to keep paying their interest. Yep. So that risk of having less um, income or no yeah. income from your asset is significantly removed. Yep. Um, and this is the thing when John and Emily get on and they're talking about why shares suck, they will by default talk about shares as if we're talking about an individual stock. Right. They're not going to think about a broad-based ETF with hundreds of companies in there. They're just not. So, everyone, this would be cool as a live debate. So, when you hear them speak, everyone, <laughs> have five bags of salt <laughs> and throw it all over your car if you're listening in the car. All right. What else have you got, Paul? Uh, what have I got next? Well, yeah, when it comes to property, mm-hmm. I would acknowledge that the one good thing property is for is leverage, right? The ability Ooh. to borrow. Right. You're not supposed to say good things about property in this episode. Well, I know, I know, I know. But I just want to contrast that. Mm. The only way to buy property is to borrow. Unless you've unless you got inherited millions cash. or something, right? Unless your name's just... Paul Benson or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I wish. <laughs> but for the vast, 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 vast majority, mm. the only way to borrow to buy property is to borrow. Mm. And what if you don't want to borrow? I mean borrowing entails risk, right? The bank wants their money back no matter what happens. Mm. You buy an investment, shares or property, and they go down, that's your problem. That's not the bank's problem. The bank wants their money back, Mm. right? And, you know, the interest rates can move on you, which is exactly what we're seeing now. Mm. And it's certainly less flexible as well. So, shares give you the ability to invest without borrowing. Property does not give you that option. And, you know, I was even thinking like, and this is cool just to have this fodder to think about, the borrowing actually does add a level of risk. Uh, Totally. That you can't control, albeit. uh, I actually put on Instagram recently when the governor of the Reserve Bank, Philip Lowe, came out. And was like, oh, sorry, everyone. 
I know I kind of said nothing was happening with interest rates for a couple of years, 2024. In the fine print, I did caveat that I could be wrong and blah, 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 blah. I put this thing up about legislative risk. Mm. And while he's technically not the government, quote unquote, I just put it in that same bag. So what legislative risk is, if you've got a business and you're waiting for government approval for a new product or something like that, whether a local council approval for your new cafe, legislative risk is if something changes with the law that you can't control that impacts your business. So it just adds another layer of risk with interest rates, perhaps, or the bank's guidelines changing. Yeah, totally. And I mean, if if you've entered a fixed term rate as well, uh, it can really reduce your flexibility. Mm. And certainly, you know, given we just spoke about all the transaction costs associated with buying a property, then generally you're buying a property with a 10 year plus time frame, right? Mm. To sort of amortise those costs over a reasonable amount of time, mm. which greatly reduces your flexibility. And I can give an example of that. So some clients we work with, and I was just looking at it just today, I'm talking with them tomorrow. Um, So we did a strategy for them about 18 months ago. And uh, the objectives at the time were, look, we want to ultimately end up down in Tassie, buy a house down there. But for the moment, we're on the mainland, happy renting uh, and happy to do that for for some time yet, want that flexibility. Uh, But unfortunately, they've, they've just reached out and the property that they're renting, they've got to leave. Opportunities for other rental properties are pretty thin on the ground. And so they're starting to think, well, look, perhaps we should buy uh, perhaps this year, um, you know, the expectation that property prices are probably coming off a bit uh, and maybe there's an opportunity there. So by the fact that we've got a strategy that didn't entail an investment property and therefore a whole lot of transaction costs and borrowings, we've got an ungeared situation here. Even though we didn't design the strategy to be sort of ended in 18 months time and it's not like the share market's had a wonderful 18 months either but nevertheless we can still pivot and we can change and move to okay let's jump into you buying your own home and we can do that quite effortlessly Mm. almost no cost um it's easy to change. Now, had we pursued an investment property strategy 18 months ago, it would be very, very difficult to change course right now. Mm. Um, so, yeah, that, that, that idea of being able to invest without borrowing, if you wish, and, and the flexibility and the, and the de-risking that that provides, I think is quite a significant advantage for share investments. It's fascinating. A lot of people will make these grand assumptions that like, I don't invest in shares because it's like gambling and it's risky where they won't put five grand in a share investment, but they'll walk in to a mortgage broker, borrow 600 grand and buy an investment property in the next street without even flinching their risk muscle. And there's a whole psychology piece there about I can see it, Mm. which means it's not risky. So look, there's just, you know, actually before we hit record on this risk thing, Mm. you were telling me about another client of yours who was looking to buy another property, um, out east from here, I don't even know where we are, but um, and the price hadn't moved at all, and they might end up selling it. Just yeah, that was interesting. Yeah, so that was in St Kilda actually for for the Melbourneites. Um, bought it for six hundred and five in twenty twenty. A unit. Yes. Yep. Yep. Put it on the market. What I don't really know how they come up with this number, but we're hoping for about seven hundred. Uh, got no offers at auction, and now they're actually the agents out you know, marketing the property for 600. So that's a fraction less than what they paid for it. But of course they paid stamp duty and all mm. the costs and they're going to have to pay the agent to sell it. And that sort of stuff. So they're definitely in the hole, but that's almost irrelevant because at the moment there's no one even looking to pay 600. So yeah, I mean, look, there's, you know, and, and, and yeah, I mean, there are borrowings there and, you know, there, there are some issues there, right? It's not a good outcome. So yeah, yeah well, just on that, uh, before we go to the break, I didn't have it uh, strictly written down. That's kind of another risk of uh, liquidity. Mm, Yep. And we know that, so for everyone playing at home who's new to this uh, money world, in terms of liquidity, if I've got $1,000 in the bank, I can walk in tomorrow and get the $1,000 back. If I've got $1,000 worth of CBA shares, I can log in tomorrow to the broker, sell them tomorrow. If I've got a property... I can't just go in and get it sold tomorrow. Could be a six-week process at a minimum. Absolute minimum. The other thing is you can't do a partial sale. 
That's so, right. So if you've got your thousand CBA shares, you could sell half of them or a quarter of them. Mm, can't sell but half with property, a house. It's all or nothing, isn't it? Mm, so no, great point. Yeah, lots there. We'll take a quick break and we'll come back and bring it home with some sexy share sentences. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Okay, we're back. Recap so far. You've talked about diversification, transaction costs, uh, the borrowing. And you don't the, need to borrow. You to don't need, you don't can need, do, you but can you don't do. need to. I've talked about uh, it's the only asset that will tax you the start, during and after. Um, I've talked about cash flow risk. But now I actually want to go to the other end. And we did talk about drawdown just for the break. But for those who might be a little bit older than the average Glenn, um, shares are potentially easier to manage when you're in your retirement years, when you're not accumulating anymore. Because you've got the income flexibility where you know the money's always going to be there. You don't have all the drama with property. And also, if you need that 20 grand to buy a new car or zip away, you can just pull it out of the portfolio and get on with your life. My next point in terms of um, retirement and pension and, and all that, it's easy to move your super into a pension phase without having direct property. Yep. Uh, you, you can't own a direct property in a retail super fund. So you need a self-managed super fund. So that adds another level of complexity. But the big one here, there can be more flexibility with your estate planning. If you've got one big lumpy property and you've got multiple adult children and you check out, well, that asset, it needs to be liquidated to, so that the estate can effectively pay out and close and wind up the estate. Now, all those other compounding issues with like liquidity and the market, can we actually sell that property at a good rate in a timely fashion for the estate? So, it's not the end of the world to own property, but it's just another consideration in terms of the flexibility. Yeah. Yeah, you know, that's a good point. And, and just to circle back on you, you one about in retirement and pension too. The other thing that, that's come up sometimes for, for our clients is some shares or businesses or, you know, particular markets are more biased towards growth and others are more biased towards income. So as an example, the Aussie market tends to be more biased towards income because of our franking credit system. Whereas say the NASDAQ, you know, US tech stocks, doesn't pay very much income at all, but pays a whole lot of growth, mm. right? If you were in retirement and you needed income to live, then you could take the view that, all right, well, then I have to be all Aussie and I, don't, I can't have any NASDAQ because it doesn't produce any income. Mm. But in fact, that's not correct because the beauty of shares is you could be in NASDAQ if that was where you wanted to be invested and you just progressively sell down. All mm. right, I need some cash. Well, I'll sell down $5,000 worth of those. And, and, and the growth is enough to make that feasible potentially, mm. right? So the shares give you the ability, even if your preference is for businesses that are more growth-oriented, you can nevertheless still have that give you income via progressive sell-downs 
you just have nothing like that sort of flexibility in a property scenario. And I'm also thinking as well for those who are, you know, looking down the barrel of getting some retirement planning and all that stuff, or if you for your own life, how you set it up. So for me, Glenn James, all my superannuation is in equities. Hmm. Done. I do property. I do also equities outside of super. But I mean, I'm really doing both because, you know, my parents have just had some retirement advice, um, you know, and if you are over 55 and you are looking at that pre-retirement stuff, make sure you check out the Retire Right podcast because we've just kind of got that off the ground. There's some more episodes coming in the new year. We're really going to hit that. As part of a planning discussion around pension phase and super and tax efficiencies, you know, if my parents just had two investment properties outside of super, done. Like, what do you do? Like, might not want to sell the properties, but because they got the flexibility, the money was moved to pension phase, uh, part of their risk profile and goals, um, you know, typical bucket strategy. At all times, they've got like three years worth of expenses in cash. Mm -hmm. So, it's, it's just so much more flexibility for them rather than just having property and like, we just live off the rent, which is fine. But what happens if your property tenant doesn't pay rent for a month. Are you going, why should you go hungry? Mm-hmm. Where yeah, you still got your bills to pay. So, exactly. So, that doesn't work. So, just as a, a cautionary tale for everyone, like if you are like, you know, Mr. or Mrs. Property and you just froth on property, just chill out for 10 minutes and maybe consider equity investments mm. as part of your broader strategy. Hey, and just. I know this is getting into the weeds no, slightly, no, this is what it's but, all about, but, but, yeah. but I think I think there's just another point that is interesting off that uh, example of your parents. Let's say they had a couple of properties that were outside super and, and assuming that, you know, they retire and they retire for 30 years, right? And you'd expect that the value of that property would continue to grow over time. At some point when you inherit it, let's say, or maybe they need to sell it because they need cash down the road, there's going to be capital gains tax payable on that. Mm. But if that wealth was inside super and predominantly shares, could be bonds, could be all sorts, right? Could be listed property for that matter. But that super would have converted from accumulation to pension. And at the point that it you know, switches over, that doesn't trigger a tax event. So that's fine. You just continue to hold the assets. But from that point forward, whenever you sell those assets, no capital gains tax, mm. zero. So, you know, the property scenario, you could end up down the road, hundreds of thousands of dollars of capital gains tax over in the superannuation scenario, zero. But also um, year-on-year income tax. Correct. I like, mean, that as well. Yeah, yeah like but, once you're in pension phase in your super, you, you're basically retiring tax-free. Mm. Any income is tax-free. And if you've got two or three properties outside super and they're punching out 150 grand of income a year, that's straight on your tax return. Correct. Yep. Where if you had that type of wealth in pension phase in superannuation, mm. that's tax free mm-hmm. up to the 1.7 mil. But hey. And that's per person. I mean, in a yeah. couple, they've got 3.4. So, so there's plenty of room to move there. But actually, this is really, this is good. And I love these conversations. And John and I have been doing these lately where we have these talking points. Mm. And it's, pro- it's probably a retire right episode here. But like, if someone is property heavy and they're in their 50s, you need to start getting advice now because it may be time over the next 10 years to offload some of that property and get that wealth into that tax haven called superannuation for pension phase. Yeah, I mean, at least have a plan as to when you're going to shift it because often, so I mean, that is work that we often do for clients and you might be thinking around, um, all right, well, the properties that have significant capital gains, well, we want to hold off until perhaps the person's retired mm. and then trigger that capital gain in a year where their income's otherwise low. Sure. Um, and fortunately, you know, there's a bit of room to move in terms of superannuation contributions these days, but mm. there are still limits. There are things to work through, you know, but you definitely want to have thought that through and have a strategy. Absolutely. Now, I've been out of, and we are getting off track, but we will move on. I've been out of this game for a while now. Correct me if I'm wrong. If I did have property outside super, I can only move property into my own super fund if it's a commercial property. I can't move an existing residential property that I own into super uh, because of the, um, what's the phrase? Because of the related party rules. That's right. So anyway, all this to say, if you are looking down the barrel at retiring in 10 or 15 years and you are a little bit property heavy... Get some advice because it could just save you 
so much money in tax. Mm -hmm. And then all these estate planning things that that we've talked about. So Yeah, yeah. All right, what have you got? You got two more. I got two more. Look, I think maintenance mm. is a is a big big thing. I mean, if I buy shares, I never need to reach into my pocket again. Mm. There's 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 no other requirement. I just own them, collect the dividends every 6 months. But if I buy a property, I know that the property that the, the carpet's wearing out, the kitchen's getting old, you know, eventually the bathroom's going to need an update. I mean, these days tenants are completely, you can't say you can't have pets or anything like that. So you know that that's wearing stuff out. If it's got a garden, there's those kind of considerations. Everything, we all know, properties mm. wear out. They need maintenance. Mm. You never have that with shares. Yeah. And, and that sort of circles back to the point I raised earlier around, well, can we really rely on the property stats? I, I think it's, it's a challenge. Mm. But even just setting that aside, just from a cash flow perspective, you just never know. You're expecting your rent one month, but actually, no, the hot water unit blow up and all the rent goes on the hot water yeah, unit. Yeah, that's the, the old-fashioned thing. My shares don't blow a hot water system. Correct. So I think that's a really significant advantage. And, and it, I guess a, a lot of this just points back to risk, doesn't it? But mm. shares just don't have that risk. But it's so funny. It's like once you truly understand something, you can stomach it because you might think I buy property because it never goes down in value, blah, blah, blah. Well, we've just given an example before where mm. property did go down in value. But if you understand when you buy shares that you own the underlying unit or share, there could be uh, face value fluctuations in the unit price or the share price, but you still own that share or unit. Mm. That's right. Um, and it's just understanding market cycles and whatnot. But one of the things I made a, just a bit of a, a note on the maintenance thing, for me, I'm well established financially. If hot water system goes, whatever, there's $800. I don't know how much they are. Probably grand. That's not breaking Glenn James's bank. But one of the maintenance factors is is the pain in the ass? Oh, there's another freaking email I've got to respond to. And, yeah. I'm, and I'm clutching at straws here for reasons, but it's like the real estate, oh, Glenn, this broke, or hey, Glenn, that thing, and all this. And, you know, the tenants have asked, can they extend the lease and just sign a three month lease? And I was just like, I was telling month for month, don't care, whatever, just sort it. Like, so there's more mental and emotional load the more properties you have. And yeah, I've got property managers and all that. But I still get the emails from the managers. Well, but I mean, examples like that. I mean, if you need to replace the floor, right? Mm. As the owner, well, you're going to have to do a bit of running around and decide, well, am I getting carpet? Am I getting whatever, floating floorboards? And if I'm getting carpet, which colour am I choosing? And what well, that's the thing. Like, like, you do have to be involved. Now, some people love that, mm. right? So that's, you know, and, and that's why they get into property. But, but it's work and effort and it just, if, if you're busy... Shares are your better option or you just, you've got a life. Yeah. Uh, you, you just don't have to face and those kind of issues. And you know, one of my properties, well, all my properties are actually, luckily enough, you know, within an hour and a bit drive from where I live. But like, sure, if it was in Brisbane or Melbourne, I'd be like, agent, sort it out. Are you getting taken advantage of? Are they just like interstate landlord? Yeah, just sort it like, and the tradies there, like, oh, it's just the property they live or whatever, just like, mm. I'm sure that's the exception, not the rule, of course, but like, one of my properties that Dirty Mike and uh, his wife live in, they're friends, they've been on the show, everyone knows Dirty Mike, um, it needs new carpet downstairs. The people I bought it off, they put the cheapest crap in on the planet <laughs> and it needs replacing. Now, when they move out, there's going to be a time where I've got to meet someone there. Yep. Yeah, quotes. Because I'm not going to just tell the agent to do it. It's like, no, I'll just do it myself. It's all good. Like... So it's just this time factor mm. and I've got to organize the carpet or am I going to just tile downstairs? So yeah, it's um, just yep. another thing. Got to remove the existing and how's that going to be got yeah. rid of, et cetera. Shares never wear out. That's that, right. That, that's the summary. Giddy up, baby. Over to you, Glenn. What's your next one? All right. My next one is the pricing and value. You can know the worth of your portfolio to the cent every single day. Which is interesting, isn't it? Because that's it's good like, and bad. That's often what puts people <laughs> off, right? It's exactly, yeah. You know, you raised it earlier. A people's perception if they've never held shares, for instance, oh, shares are too risky. You know, the price always goes up and down. Mm. I mean, the reality is, if you auctioned your house every day, it would go up and down in price too. Mm. But that's not what happens in yep. reality. So it doesn't feel like it, does it? Yep. So you can know exactly what your worth is every day categorically. Mm -hmm. So. And, it, and it, I guess that ties back to your point earlier about liquidity too, doesn't it? Exactly. By virtue of that, it means if you needed cash, you could sell, you got your money in the bank in three days. 
but and, and you know what that mm. money's going to be. Absolutely. The property, put it on the market, market, blah, 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 goes to auction, whatever. Then you find out what you might get. And I think as well as a negative to property, you're probably more emotionally attached to a property than you are to your shares. Yeah, I think that's probably fair. Like, you can't live in your shares. I get that. Yeah. But, um, yeah, anyway. Yeah, nice one. What's your last point? Final one. Look, and I'm, and I'm ending strong here. Oh, look out. I'm actually going to end weak next. <laughs> <laughs> Yin and yang. We'll balance each other out, right? Property, right? What we're, You're buying a property, you obviously, you want it to grow in value. And the only way it grows in value really is if is through population growth. Mm. Because if our population goes sideways, then there's no real reason why property should go up in value. We've just mm. spoken about the fact that it wears out over time. So if anything, it should decrease in value. So that's hinging on there being population growth. And and that's related to immigration. And the expectation is that that will continue, but as we saw through COVID, eh, not always. Mm. Whereas a company or a, you know, a, a share, which is a share in a company, there's a fundamental reason why that should increase in value. I mean, a, a, if you take Commonwealth Bank as an example, they will make X amount of profit, they'll pay out a portion of that in dividends, and in the case of banks, it's a lot, right? It's 80 or 90% of the profit they pay in dividends, but they always hold back 10 or 20% mm. to reinvest in the business, to develop their technology, to build new websites, to whatever, build new branches, employ staff, right? Companies' stocks are always holding back a portion of their profits. Perhaps a better example is CSL. Mm. They would hold back at least 50% of their profits and put that into R&D and researching the new drugs, new solutions. And so it makes sense that over time, the value of your shares increases in value because there's that compounding and that constant reinvestment. Property just doesn't have that. As I say, if anything, property should get you know, decreases in value by by virtue of the fact that it wears out. The only reason it goes up is because we have a growing population. Yeah, I would probably, I'm going to counter that on behalf of the property people, then I'm going to counter my counter. I love it. All, All right. right. Fire this away. This is wild here. <laughs> so the property people will go, there's not one market. So yes. they would say, yeah, population growth, yeah, but we just go to an area where they're building new schools and transport and all that. Okay, I get that. But to counter that point... If we use Woolworths as an example, Woolworths will do that worrying for me. So they will actually ride that wave and go, well, we'll open a new supermarket in that town because it is growing. And then if there's a town over here that was a mining town, they'll just close the store and move it if there is um, not any growth in that town. So, So I think, yes, it's true. You can get around that with property by, you know, there are markets within markets. Like if we're in, um, what suburb are we in here? Essendon. Essendon. Um, you know, there's an apartment market in Essendon. There's a freehold market. There's a commercial property market mm. in Essendon. So there's three markets within the one market. There's probably a market on that side of the highway and this side. So there are markets within markets. Totally. But we can still get around that with our listed companies that can manage that risk for us anyway. Yep. And as I say, there's just that that underlying logic as mm. to why it is that that share should increase in value. Now, sometimes management might make bad calls, and you know they invest and it doesn't work out. Right, that happens. But nevertheless, over time, you're going to hit more winners than losers. Mm. And so there's just a, there's a compounding effect that's built into shares that simply doesn't exist when it comes to property. So look, that's my that's my final one. I guess a little bit deeper, but mm. it, but it's just a, a fundamental logic as to why it is that shares. Uh, make more sense as a growth investment. Now, I'm going to finish very weak. Your share investing, it can be very low maintenance, mm-hmm. okay? Um, and they might say, well, your property can be low maintenance if you get a property manager. Yep, I understand that. But shares, it's actually self-directed. You don't actually need a third party. You just use a, a platform and a brokerage account. I mean, hopefully you use a good financial planner, Glenn. Yeah, but- well, but, well, <laughs> that's true. But I'm saying for those starting out, true, that's right. You can open up like get a started, do it yourself. Self wealth account, Vanguard account, Shares account. You know, insert your Comsec. Hmm. What's the Perler? Like all these different accounts. You can just ETF A two hundred, ETF X Y Z. Like it can be very very self directed. Mm-hmm. Then once you get to that critical mass, and you need some strategy and a sounding board and all that stuff, you would see. Uh, a financial professional. Well done. <laughs> and I will, that was my last point, but I did make another note here. I don't have to insure my shares. So Great I, I have to pay building insurance. I don't have to, but be a good bloody idea. Sensible. Um, 
I have to pay uh, landlord insurance mm-hmm. if I've got a tenant. So, you know, that's just another thing that you got to do mm. if you own property. And I don't pay insurance on my shares because they outsource that to Woolworths. They can pay their own insurance on their buildings. Well, that's right. And the whole settlement process, that's what Chess looks after and the ASX looks after as well. So, you know, we've got regulation and, and, and systems yep. in place in Australia to protect you as an investor. And guess what, people? You can still buy property on the ASX with real estate investment trusts. Very true. I love REITs. Yeah? Yeah. What do you love about them? Sounds wild, but I'll go there. I always go and do a smash and grab on REITs after a big market event because they just get slammed. Mm. And you go in, you back that truck up, beep, Beep, did, you, did you do much beep, of that after the GFC? Because there was definitely an opportunity there. <laughs> I didn't have as much money after no. the GFC because I was just starting my career. But COVID, giddy up, baby. Yeah, okay. So ba- so basically what I do, I do monthly investing, right? Right. I've got an investment bond. I've got my self-wealth account and I've got automatic investing there and all that stuff. Mm. And then I'm always still a little bit cash heavy. So if there is... Because I like to have cash for opportunities. Yep. I forget a phone call. Hey, you want to invest in this? I'm like, hey, all right, whatever. I'll give it some money. Um, but if there is an opportunity, I'll just back the truck up and put some extra cash in. Nice. And it kind of is timing the market, but on balance, it's not a rule in my life because I do set monthly investing. Mm. But mm. it's just, I like to have cash for opportunity in yep. my investing. Not only direct equities, but if I get approached with a um, IPO thing or um, some other weird venture yep, yep. as part of my investing strategy, um, You've got that I've got opportunity, yeah. I guess the interesting thing with the REITs is, I mean, they're normally commercial, aren't they? So it's a bit That's different the thing. to residential, which I guess is what we've spoken about today. Yeah, yeah. yeah and so, and um, we know with the commercial property, you generally get a higher yield, mm-hmm. but we know with higher yield means more risk and there could be a risk of an office being empty for a year. Yeah, but if you're in a REIT, it's going to hold multiple well, you've got the diversifications right? and all that. And you've yeah. got a manager there that's, that's, that's looking after mm. that for you. So, mm. um, But yeah, it, you're right. It's a good kind of halfway house almost, isn't mm. it? You could get your property exposure, do it on the share market, and then you've got all the liquidity and, and, and flexibility, you know, um, visibility around pricing, all those kind of benefits. Totally. Yeah. Well, Paul, you've talked about... It's not dependent on population growth, no maintenance for shares. You can invest in as little shares as you want, uh, more flexibility, minimal transaction costs, diversification. I've talked about the tax stuff, uh, consistent cash flow. Uh, you can know your price and your value anytime. It's self-directed and possibly some more options and flexibility with pension phase and estate planning. That's some interesting ones that I didn't think we'd get to there. So that's yeah. nice, Clint. Well, like Everyone, that was worth exactly what you paid for it. So if you want a full refund, write to My Millennial Money Refunds, GPO Box 721 in your capital city. And we'll give you a full refund of the cost that you paid for this episode. (laughs) If you think it sucked. All right. Nice knowing you. Uh, You can listen to Financial Autonomy wherever you're listening to this podcast. Paul Benson, thanks so much for joining me on My Millennial Money. We'll do it again soon. Beauty. Thanks, Glenn. Bye, everyone. We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. My Millennial Money supports a variety of charities, and we encourage you to consider giving as part of your overall financial strategy. If you would like some giving options, or if you're unsure about which charity you can support, head to mymillennial.money forward slash charities for more info. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination, and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, and Glenn James are authorized representatives of Money Sherpa Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289. And we're happy to give them a full refund. <laughs> you can pay for this refund. 100% of it. A really stretch. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Nice knowing you. Uh, you can listen to Financial Autonomy wherever you're listening to this podcast. You can buy Paul's book, Financial Autonomy, 
the money book that gives you choice. It's a really good book, that. I really liked it. Are you going to do another one? Thank you, Glenn. Uh, no plans at the moment. But, yeah, it's uh, a pain in the ass, isn't it? Uh, well, it was a good project, but it's yeah. a lot of work. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, no, I'm pretty pretty happy with where that is. But uh, oh, I can't compete, obviously, with all the, all the books you're knocking out. What are you, up to number three or something? Or what's going on? Yeah, we are, I haven't announced it yet, but we're writing a third. <laughs> Oh, well done. So, um, but there, there is a book out in February called Sort Your Career Out was, and Make More Money. That was the one I was thinking about. Yeah, yeah and that's yeah, yeah. such a good book. So that's with Shelley, yeah? Yeah. Yep. Because, you know, the best investment you can make, forget shares, forget property, it is the person standing in the mirror and that person's career. Mm. Without doubt, the best investment you'll ever make. Yeah, well, if you generate the income, then you've got all sorts of options as to what you can yep. do with it and, 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 yeah, the choices that you can develop. Our human capital... We are probably the two to three million dollar walking annuity. Mm. Now you can do some maintenance on your annuity to get it to produce more income, right? So yeah, that's true. And, and I mean, and we're working longer as well, aren't we? Yep. I, was, I saw something the other day where they were talking about the hundred year life and mm. becoming more and more normal. So if you're going to live to a hundred, you're probably going to work to your well mm. produce income in some Gosh, capacity to your seven. Do yeah. I have to live that long? <laughs> Friggin' over it now. Well, you've had your ankle done. I know, so now it's, you, it's you, too hard work you're now. Rock. You're oh, the bionic man. You're laughing. Gosh. Anyway, but yeah, there's a third book coming that we've just started. Can you can you can you tease us a little bit? So you've done careers. Not, well, the first your... to sort your money out and get invested was 105,000 words. Right. Sort your career out was 90 or 85. Right. This one's going to be 50. Yeah, <laughs> good. Get it down. That's and more my my type yeah, of book. So yeah. we're we're talking. I, I've I've wanted to do uh, an investing book. Just right. on investing in shares. Yeah, oh, good. Um, I'm actually, we're not even announcing it now, but I'm co-writing it with a friend of mine yep. who hosts the My Millennial Investor podcast. Quite appropriate. And um, I'm going to spend the first heap of chapter talking about your why, your values, your investor mindset, because you really do need an investor mindset. Because otherwise, you'll walk in tomorrow, you'll buy some shares, you'll buy property, 10 minutes later, something happens and you want to sell it and you've lost money. It's just been a big waste of time. And then Nick's going to get into some of the stuff around um, building your own portfolio, um, options, explaining options and getting income from options. So it's a little bit more intermediate with Mm. the options stuff. Um, We're going to have templates there for how to develop your own uh, personal investment strategy. Um, And yeah, just geek out on investing. Sounds fantastic. Nice work. Bloody hell! You just you're a you're a dynamo. I don't know how you do it all. Oh, I don't have a life though. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, everyone's like you're so busy. I'm like, yeah, I, I don't actually have a life. I'd probably need to get one. Uh, but look, it's a pain in the ass. But it's awesome when you you get your thoughts out onto paper mm. and someone reads it and they say, "Oh, thanks so much. Got so much out of that." So. And, you know, you get it done and it's there forever, isn't it? It's, mm. it's a nice, nice thing to have. So between now and when Nath edits this episode and we put it up. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Don't know if we'll leave the book thing in there, but at the moment, (laughs) it's on the record and it might stay. So, Paul Benson, thanks so much for joining me on My Millennial Money. We'll do it again soon. Beauty. Thanks, Glenn. Bye, everyone.